Well, last year a movie came out titled Unbroken, about a man who endured great trials and unspeakable suffering. And though he was tested, he did not break and serves as an inspiration for many. And actually, now that some of you knew him personally, his name was Louis or Louis Zamperini. Zamperini was born in 1917, and in high school he ran track and field, qualified for the 5,000-meter race in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. But as you know, shortly thereafter, World War II started, so he enlisted in the Air Force and flew in a B-24 bomber over the Pacific. One day, though, in May 1943, the plane had mechanical failure and they crashed into the ocean. It killed eight of the 11 men on board. Zamperini and two others were rescued in a life raft, and they together were adrift at sea for 47 days. That was his first great trial. They had no food or water. They barely survived off rainwater and small fish. They had to fend off constant shark attacks. They were nearly capsized by a storm. And Japanese bombers would strafe them and puncture their raft. On day 33, one of the men died. Day 47, though, they finally struck landfall. Only it was a Japanese-controlled island, and they were taken prisoner. And this marks Amperini's second grave trial. For two years, he was severely beaten and mistreated as a prisoner of war. A prison guard known as the Bird took a special interest in personally torturing and tormenting him. After the war, that guard was listed as the 23rd most wanted war criminal in Japan. And to make matters worse, Zamperini was listed as KIA, killed in action, so no one was even looking for him. But despite being nearly starved to death and nearly beaten to death, he endured. After the war ended, he survived, he was released, he returned home to a hero's welcome, but he was severely scarred, he resorted to alcoholism to cope. Thankfully, though, his life turned around in 1949 when he heard a sermon by Billy Graham, and he gave his life to Christ, he was transformed. He went on to forgive his Japanese tormentors and to devote the rest of his life to evangelism and ministry. But just thinking about this man's Amazing life, especially his time of suffering and torture during the war. And it provides quite the compelling story, right? I mean, I guess that's why they made a movie about it. But talk about trial and tribulation. Few people in history have met, have been met with that level of, of suffering in life and torment. When you hear, hear people tell such stories or they give their own story, you often hear others respond and say, well, we all have our crosses to bear. And every now and then you might hear someone say, well, we all have our Gethsemane. We all have our Gethsemane. Well, it's true that we all have our lot of suffering in life. I do want you to be clear on one thing, that there's only one cross and there's only one Gethsemane. Yes, many people like Zamperini have profound tales of suffering in life. I'm not trying to downplay that by any means. But it is important that you understand that whatever we experience in life, as bad as it might be, it doesn't come anywhere remotely close to what Jesus experienced on the cross. In fact, our greatest suffering doesn't even come close to what Jesus experienced the night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's very important that you understand this. It's more important that you understand why that's true. Why was Christ's suffering so profound? What made his trial so great? And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our trials and tribulation in life? And this morning we aim to find out. You can open your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 14. I know we've been away from Mark for a few weeks, but 
now we're back. We're ready to make re-entry. We find ourselves back on his final night of life. On that final night, Jesus wanted to spend some extra time with his disciples. So together, they, they got together in that upper room. They observed one last Passover meal, which Jesus transformed into a new meal, a communion meal, by which his disciples could remember him always. But that time's come to an end. That The evening's over. The meal is over. It's time to go home. So Jesus and his disciples, they resided in Bethany each night, which is a town a couple miles outside Jerusalem. So they're on their way. They depart from the upper room, which was in the city. They head east. They're going home to Bethany. But now we get to our text, Mark 14, 32 through 42, which catches Jesus and his disciples making a, a little pit stop along the way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus pulls them over so he can spend a little bit of time in prayer before they make the rest of the trip home to Bethany. Now Jesus, of course, knows what's coming. He's already even predicted it. Judas and his mob, they're gathering at that moment to go and arrest him. So this was his last taste of freedom. But it also means this was his last chance to run away. This was his last chance to, to get some swords, to make a, a last stand. This was his last chance to recant, to save himself. This was his last chance to avoid the cross before he's arrested and, it, and it's too late. This is also true and Jesus knows it. So what we really find taking place in the garden is also Christ's last and greatest temptation. Temptation to avoid the cross. Through prayer, though, he endures this unspeakable mental anguish. And the result is this profound and seemingly incomprehensible passage of Jesus suffering and praying to his Father in the garden. In case you're not familiar, let's, let's start by reading this passage through, Mark 14, 32 through 42. I bet you are familiar with it, but let, it all speaks to us when we read it afresh. Let's do that now. Follow along, Mark 14, Mark 14 starting at verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is, going, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold. The one who betrays me is at hand. We can't help but witness here Jesus in his true humanity fully feel the weight of sin that is about to be placed on his shoulders. We watch as he stares into the cup of wrath that he is about to drink and his soul recoils. Yet he will endure this temptation to avoid the cross and he will fully submit to the will of the Father. Jesus emerges truly unbroken 
No one was ever tempted or tried as Jesus was. No one has encountered such suffering, but he endured. He obeyed God's will and he remained unbroken. This text, therefore, leaves behind a powerful encouragement, both from the work that he accomplished for us in the garden and the example he left behind. We will never have to face our Gethsemane or our cross because Jesus faced it for us. That's the great takeaway here. This is not to say our lives will be without trial and tribulation and suffering, but but through his example, we also learn how we are to patiently endure our trials and come out unbroken by sin. We find then in Gethsemane new appreciation for what Jesus did for us. This passage, it's, it's so special, so profound, because it gives us a preview of the cross, just like Jesus was having his preview of the cross in the garden. It's so special, we don't want to rush through it all. There's a lot to chew on here. We want to digest this bit by bit. So we're going to be doing this over a couple of weeks. But today we want to get started in particular by by first focusing on Christ's experience in the garden, what he was going through as a person. It's so rare that we get a window into Christ's soul. It's so rare we get to find out what's going on on the inside, what he was feeling. It's even rarer to see him like this. This was Jesus in complete mental anguish. He's not a robot. He was a true man, and he genuinely recoiled at the thought of the cross, which threatened to crush him. And today, we want to understand Christ's experience, you know, as best we can, in the garden. What, what was he going through? What did that mean for him? What does that mean for us? What can we learn from his experience in the garden? That's what we aim to find out this morning. So we'll make our way through these verses as we normally do explaining as we go. Let's start again back in verse 32, which sets it up and says, verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane. They've left the upper room. They're marching to Bethany. They stop by in Gethsemane. Now, you've heard of this place before. You probably already know it's a garden. It's a garden of Gethsemane. We learned that from John's gospel. What kind of a garden? Well, the name gives us a clue. Gethsemane means olive press. It's on the Mount of Olive, so it, it was an olive garden. It was an olive grove. Probably had a wall built around it with a gated entrance. So Jesus and his disciples, they come to this garden. And was this the first time Jesus stopped in Gethsemane to pray? Actually, no, it wasn't. We also learned that in John 18. Verse 2 says Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was his routine. It was a quiet, secluded place to pray away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. And from John, we almost get the impression that Jesus stopped by Gethsemane like every night during that Passion Week on the way home to Gethsemane. This was his routine. It was a common stop, which explains how Judas knows exactly where to find him that night. Judas knows where he's going to be. In John 18, we learn that Judas takes advantage of that knowledge. We'll see that to come. But already this tells us something. It tells us Jesus isn't hiding. Jesus knows that Judas is out to betray him that night. He already knows that. And he also knows that Judas knows that he normally stops in Gethsemane to pray. I mean, he probably did it at the same time as well. So if Jesus really wanted to save his skin, he should not be going to Gethsemane. 
It's like if you're, the cops are looking for you, you don't go to your mom's house. Like they're, they're going to look there. But Jesus doesn't change. He, does, he keeps his routine. He does what he normally does. He goes to Gethsemane to pray, which is what he had done often with his disciples. Now, that being said, this trip to Gethsemane would turn out you know, a little bit different than all the others. I think it's safe to say. Verse 32, they come to Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So upon entering this garden, he leaves eight disciples by the entrance. Judas, he's already out of the picture. They're told to sit and wait for Jesus while he goes deeper to pray. This would be their chance to pray as well and to keep watch. He takes his inner circle of disciples further into the garden. Peter, James, and John. We've seen them before. These three guys, they're singled out often. Jesus took these three with him when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So they firsthand witnessed his resurrection power. These three guys especially were going to be the pillars of the early church. So Jesus wanted them to see these glimpses into his true nature and his true power. You'll also remember later on, he took these three as well with him up the mountain when he was transfigured before them. So they witnessed his divine glory, his true essence, his, his exaltation. It's in such an exalted state that Jesus will return and he will reign. Well, it was after the transfiguration, especially for Peter, James, and John, they really became preoccupied with that glory, that kingdom glory. They wanted the kingdom to come right now. They wanted that glory right now. And when the kingdom comes, they, they wanted to be on top. And so after that event, we see Peter going up to Jesus saying, what will be our reward? We've left everything to follow you. You know, what do we get? Also, James and John, they top that. They go up to Jesus and say, we want to be at your right hand and your left when you come in your glory. But if we can say anything, this is probably why Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him deeper into Gethsemane. Because on this occasion, they needed to learn another lesson. Yes, Jesus is the path to resurrected life. Jesus is the path to eternal glory. But even for Jesus, that resurrected life and that eternal glory comes after his suffering. Even for Jesus, the cross comes before the crown. Trials and tribulation will mar the chosen one before that glory comes. That was true for Jesus, and you better believe it's true for his disciples as well. Peter, James, and John, above all, they need to learn this because their trials were just beginning. They would be facing their own trials and temptations. And they needed to learn, I mean really learn, the weakness of their own flesh, but the strength of their Lord, if they too were to endure their lot. And by the end, that's what they'll learn, but they'll learn it the hard way. So nonetheless, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John deeper into the garden to pray. And then verse 33 continues. It says, And he began to be very distressed and troubled. Every word in that phrase is significant. It says he began. Jesus and the three, they walked deeper into the garden. Something new happened. Something commenced. A feeling came over Jesus. It's like walking into a massive storm. One moment you're inside, you're safe, you're sound, it's warm, you're cozy. But then you just you walk out that door into the storm, you cross that threshold, and all of a sudden you're in a whirlwind. 
the storm has come over you. And, and that's what was happening to Jesus. He entered this whirlwind. He was hit with this wave of feelings that were troubling. What happened? It says he began to be very distressed and troubled. These are two words we really need to understand what they mean. First word, very distressed, comes from the root word thambeo in Greek, which means to be astonished, to be amazed, to be alarmed, to be astounded. Here the word is ekthambeo, so it means very astonished, very distressed, greatly disturbed, hugely astounded. This word is used to describe some sort of terrifying surprise. Usually in the Bible, the source is some divine manifestation that causes fear and trepidation. For example, this word was used twice to describe the reaction of the women when they entered the empty tomb and found an angel. It's like it was a terrifying surprise. And so as Jesus walks in the garden, he's first overcome with this feeling. He's very distressed. A sense of trembling comes over him. He's now standing in the shadow of the cross. He knows what's coming, but it's now starting to hit him like a, a ton of bricks, and he's, he's feeling it. He's terrified. This leads to the second word, trouble. This is another strong term des- describing great anguish. Ademoneo in the Greek, it speaks of extreme agitation. His soul was deeply troubled. And picture an ocean or, or a lake like the Sea of Galilee, And it's perfectly still. It's not moving at all. It's like glass. You see the flawless reflection of the sky. That's how we most often picture the inner state of Jesus. You know, he's always in the perfect peace and harmony. But now picture a sea in turmoil. There's this great storm. The waters, they're shifting. They're slushing about. Giant waves are crashing against one another violently. It's just turmoil. It's a tempest. Well, this verse is saying that is now the picture of Jesus. That, that's what he's feeling on the inside right now. He's in utter turmoil. In this moment in the garden, he is not experiencing peace. Now, I bet that will catch some of you off guard and maybe raise a few eyebrows. And you're thinking, wait a second, how can you say that Jesus wasn't experiencing peace? I mean, I thought he's fully God, right? So doesn't he, isn't he always in perfect peace? But not so fast. Do not fall into that ancient heresy of confusing and blending together his two natures. Jesus has a fully divine nature, which possesses all the divine attributes, like omnipresence, for example. And in his divine nature, of course, he always exists in perfect peace. But Jesus, in this incarnation starting now, he also possesses a fully human nature when he was born of a virgin. And that human nature comes with human attributes. His human nature doesn't have any divine attributes. It's a human nature. His human nature does not possess omnipresence, for example. It's human. And his human nature also comes with the full range of human attributes, not including our sin nature. Apart from that, it's a fully normal human nature. And so in his human nature, of course it's possible for him to experience anguish, turmoil, And that's what Jesus did experience because during his time on earth, he lived fundamentally as a man. His divine nature was never lost. He didn't get rid of his divine nature. He didn't lose a single attribute. But he did not count on his divine nature 
during the incarnation. He did not rely on it. Though he was the God-man, before the ascension, he lived as a man. So, for instance, if he didn't eat food, he would die, because that's what happens to humans. Accordingly, because of his circumstances, namely the cross, he really did feel this intense pressure, torment, and anguish, precisely because he was fully human. Any human faced with the threat of death is going to be, like verse 33 says, very distressed and troubled. This is not a sham. This isn't stage. I mean, he was really feeling this. This is what the text says. I mean, think of King David. Once upon a time, King David was on the run because his own son was leading an army to kill him. Do you think that caused him inner turmoil? Yeah, you can read some Psalms about it. It, it, it messed him up. And you would feel the same thing. And what is Jesus facing in this moment? He's facing the cross. He's facing bearing the sins of the world. And in light of that, he better feel some anguish in his human nature if he's truly human. I mean, here's the thing to consider. If Jesus went to the cross stoically, like a robot, he didn't cry. He didn't cry out when the nails were put through his hands. He didn't have any feelings or emotions. He didn't recoil at the thought of being made sin then that would fully call into question his humanity, wouldn't it? We would have to doubt, is he truly human? And then he could not be the savior for humans. Don't forget, he's required to be not only fully God, which he is, but in addition, fully man, which he is. Thankfully, he was both. But this explains why we see his turmoil in the garden. We accept that Jesus experienced the physical side of being human. He was hungry. He was thirsty in his human nature. He was tired. His divine nature doesn't know what it is to be tired. That doesn't apply. But in his humanity, for sure he experienced fatigue. That's why he needed to rest and sleep. We accept that. So why should we have trouble accepting that he also likewise experienced the full range of non-sinful human emotions? like love, righteous anger, compassion, sadness, and in the garden, anguish, turmoil, great distress, trepidation. Jesus does not enter his suffering stoically, detached, but as a true man, a sinless man. And in the garden, he's previewing the anguish of the cross, and therefore he's starting to experience that mental anguish, That comes with it before he experiences the physical and the spiritual suffering that will follow. Let's continue and let's hear from Jesus himself. Verse 33 says he was very distressed and troubled. Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. You can't argue. It's coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. And again, he's not just an actor saying this just for show. This is really what he was going through in the garden. It's quite rare that Jesus tells us about the state of his own soul, but on this occasion he does. And on the inside, he says he's deeply grieved to the point of death. 
let's unpack that a little bit. He says his soul is deeply grieved. The root word is lupos. It's a word for grief, sorrow, pain. Here the word is perilupos, which just, it's intensified. It's intensified pain. He's surrounded by sorrow. He's deeply distressed. He's afflicted beyond measure. And the result is this profound sadness. He's this overwhelming sadness. This word covers physical and mental anguish. Jesus, he'll get to know physical anguish the next day. He'll know physical sorrow come 9 o'clock in the morning when he's nailed to the cross. But for now, he's experiencing the mental sorrow, which is brought on by the threat of death. Not just any death. He has the threat of an eternal death in the sense that he was going to bear the infinite weight of our sin on his shoulders. So Jesus, he's not grieved here. He's deeply grieved. He's extremely sorrowful. How much? He says, to the point of death. What he's talking about here is the physical toll mental anguish takes on your body. We, we know what he's talking about here. This, this is, makes sense to us. We get this. We know how stress and the pressures of life circumstances can actually physically affect your body, make you suffer. I mean, as a simple example, pretend you had to stand up in front of a crowd of a thousand people and give an impromptu speech you know, right now. Just the thought of that might put a pit in your stomach. There's that thought, you might get sick physically and throw up because of that stress. Even worse, people can experience shock or even death as a result of extreme stress or, or hearing bad news in life. We, we we've heard, hear these stories all the time. There are numerous accounts of people having heart attacks or dying in response to hearing bad news. The mental sorrow is more than they can bear, and their bodies literally just give out. At the very least, trials and tribulations can weigh heavy on your soul, and they can have a real physical impact. You lose sleep. You cry. You shiver, you sweat, your heart races, you can't breathe. It feels like a 500-pound gorilla is sitting on your chest. It hurts to breathe. You're in so much mental anguish. This is what Jesus was experiencing. This mental sorrow was taking a heavy toll on him, and he felt like he was going to die, like his body was just going to give out and he was going to die. You want another example to back this up? Luke, in his gospel, he was a physician, right? So he sees what only a, a doctor would see. And he records, Luke 22, verse 44, that Jesus, being in agony, was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You remember that, I'm sure, right? Luke wasn't being figurative here. That, that's a real phenomenon. It still is. It's a real condition today called hematotidrosis, I think. It's where the capillary blood vessels near sweat glands, they dilate to the point of rupturing, and blood droplets then get into the sweat glands, and they're pushed to the surface along with sweat. So the sweat and the little blood droplets mix together, and it looks like you're sweating blood because you, you are. It's extremely rare, but modern cases have been medically documented. And what's the cause? It's unknown. It's a medical mystery. The only cause that we know of is extreme stress. Many of the other documented examples come from people awaiting execution. Really, that's just another example, although an extreme example, 
of how mental and emotional torment can take a toll on your physical body. And that's what Jesus was experiencing here to the max. He was not at peace. The pressure of the cross was starting to crush him, to crush his soul. So many people don't like to hear this because they think it affects or it diminishes the deity of Jesus. It doesn't. But they only think of Jesus one dimension, like Jesus is God, right? That's our big thing. It is true. We, that's a, a key doctrine we're studying on Sunday nights. But how can God have such experiences? In Gethsemane, Jesus, he's, not, he's too human here. He's being too human. This isn't how God should act, right? But again, this just reveals a, a misunderstanding of the incarnation and the person of Jesus. After the incarnation, Jesus is not just God. He's God-man. We can't diminish either side or subtract either side. He's God-man. He's one person. But in that one person come together perfectly yet mysteriously two natures, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. These two natures, they don't blend together. They don't mix. They don't cancel each other out. And they're also never separated. They just coexist perfectly. Now, during his time on earth, though, during his, the time of his humiliation from the virgin birth to the resurrection, he chose to live fundamentally as a man. It doesn't mean, again, that he ditched his divine nature. He did not. It just means he did not rely on it. It was veiled. His divine nature was possessed but not expressed. Therefore, we should expect to see him living like a man and experiencing life like a man, a sinless, perfect man, but a man nonetheless. And that's what we have in the Gospels. People saw him like, you're just Jesus. You're just the carpenter's son. And that's what we have in Gethsemane. He's experiencing this in humanity. But now you might say, wait a second, aren't such feelings sinful? I mean, isn't anxiety a sin? Be anxious for nothing, we're told. Jesus is sinless, so he can't really be experiencing this type of inner turmoil, right? That's, that's wrong. We're not supposed to have that, right? But again, not so fast. There's an important difference between sinful anxiety and simply experiencing the pressure of life's hardships. We all experience pressure. Pressure comes from life's difficulties. It comes upon you whether you like it or not. But to suffer external turmoil, that, that's not sin. It's simply part of the human condition. How you respond or react to such pressure in life, though, that will tell you whether or not you're going to sin. If you doubt God, if you curse God, if you disobey God because of your life's hardships, well, then you're sinning. Then you've moved into sin. My parents tell this story of when my sister was born. They just had a new house built in the hills of Burbank, and they just had a new baby girl, my older sister Megan, a couple years older than me. And on the day they were bringing her home from the hospital, they learned that their whole hill was on fire. You know, the hills of Burbank, they all catch on fire you know, like every 10 years. And so they're coming home from the hospital. They learn the hill's on fire. They get the evacuation order. So my mom's trying to take care of this newborn, my sister, and my dad is frantically trying to get the most valuable items out of the new house that they just moved into. Now put yourself in that situation. That's called pressure. That's called pressure. 
That's called life circumstances that have just, just thrown you a curveball and you'll probably suffer. In fact, that pressure might affect your body. Maybe you'll start sweating. Maybe your heart will race. You'll get neck tension. Some, you might even pass out hearing that news. But neither the situation nor the involuntary bodily response are sin. That's just pressure. That's just life's difficulties. That's part of the human condition experiencing life pressure. However, if you started to doubt God's goodness, or you curse God like, God, how could you do this to us? Or maybe during the evacuation you go to your neighbor's house and you steal their TV. Well, then you'd be sinning. I mean, you get the picture, right? The issue is not the pressure or the trial. It's how you respond that determines whether or not determines whether or not you've sinned. Internally, if you doubt God in any way, or externally, if you disobey God in any way, then, then you've sinned. And bringing it back to Jesus, he was for sure experiencing life's pressure, but not like you and me, and me would. I mean, for him, he's getting close to the cross, and that reality is sinking in that soon he's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And talk about pressure. Talk about a trial. Talk about tribulation. We, we, don't, we don't get that, but he did. He faced it. But he never doubted God. Not once, not for a second, did he doubt God or curse God. He never disobeyed God, not even close. In fact, Jesus exemplifies his perfect humanity by his right response to the pressure. What does he do in response to this pressure? It's going to kill him. So what does he do? He takes it to the Father in prayer. And so verse 35 continues. It says, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray. Luke 22 says, Jesus went just a stone's throw away so the disciples can still hear him, still see him. And what do they see? They see Jesus buckle over. According to Luke 22, first he falls to his knees, and according to Matthew 26, then he falls to his face. He just crumbles over. The, the pressure on his body is, is just too much. He just falls down. He's lying prostrate and just praying. He's praying to the Father. The turmoil was so overwhelming and he just had to pray. And that's what he did. He prayed repeatedly, continuously, passionately, interceding, asking God for strength for the hour at hand. And in so doing, he was able to endure his test and his trial. This is a good place to finally address, you know, what's going on here? What is causing him so much turmoil? Like, what's the big deal? I, I know you probably already know this, but what's the source of his extreme anguish and turmoil in his soul? It's not the fact that Judas was betraying him. That was deeply discouraging, but that's not it. It's not the fact that Israel... His people were hardened in unbelief. That was sad, but that's not it. It's not the fact that his disciples were all going to run away and abandon him. That was really depressing, but that's not it. It's not even the fact that the next day he will be brutally tortured and beaten and executed, although that's scary and painful. That's not it. What was it? What was causing his soul to be deeply grieved to the point of death? Scripture gives us a very clear answer. It was the fact that very soon he was going to be made 
sin. He was going to be made sin. He was going to become our sin bearer. He was going to bear the infinite wrath of God on that cross. That was truly terrifying. We don't get it. Thankfully, we'll never have to get it. But he got it, and it was terrifying. And the Bible expresses the terror that Jesus faced on the cross in many different ways. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.21, most famously, it says, speaking of God and Jesus, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Of course, also Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember, Jesus, he wasn't just God's servant. He was God's suffering servant. He was the one who would suffer the penalty of sin on behalf of us, of sinners, lost sheep. Wasn't this all foreseen? Wasn't the Messiah predicted to be a man of sorrows? That's, that's not figurative. He was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, you know it, verse 3 and 4, says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew it well. Verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. This is what would happen to Jesus on the cross. He'd be crushed by the Father, bearing our sin, our sorrow, our grief, all of it for us. In Gethsemane, which is just hours away from the cross, he was starting to just peek into the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink. And what did he see? He saw the penalty he would soon be paying for with his life. Penalty he didn't even deserve. He saw, figuratively speaking, hell open up for him. He didn't really go to hell, but he he bore the penalty that we would face in hell. You should be terrified at the prospect of suffering God's wrath in hell forever. We don't think about it. We don't like to think about it. We don't get it. If we did, we'd be evangelizing more, I'm sure. But we can definitely not fathom suffering the wrath of God in hell on behalf of millions of people. We just don't get it. But hopefully you can start to see, like Jesus was starting to feel, that the pressure, the trial, the tribulation. But we can also say, thank God. I mean, thank God that Jesus stayed. Thank God that he didn't run away. That he still went to the cross. I mean, you and I, we would be long gone. We would not have gone. We couldn't. It takes the sinless 
God-man to have done this. But, but thank God, though mentally crushed, Jesus endures. In Gethsemane, we see Jesus, Jesus start to get that taste of what the cup was going to be like. And it was bitter, but he didn't turn away. He was terrified at the thought of drinking that cup to the dregs, but he was strengthened by prayer. He accepted the Father's will. And he went to the cross and he suffered that wrath of God for you and for me. Any temptation to flee the cross was defeated. Jesus knew that the pressure on the cross would be infinitely greater than the pressure in Gethsemane. But you see, this Gethsemane trial, it was preparing him. It it steeled him for what was to come. And thank God Jesus endured that too. He endured the cross. Like Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. Well, like I said before, we're, we're not trying to deal with this whole Gethsemane account in one sermon. We can't. I don't think we do it justice. There's too much to chew on here. As you can see, we haven't even scratched the surface when it comes to the content of Jesus' prayer here, where he asks the Father, if possible, remove the cup from me. You think, how, how can he say that? We'll find out next week when we'll focus exclusively on the humanity of Jesus here in his prayer. But for now, we, we've seen enough in the text. We, we've got enough to chew on. And I want us to spend a little bit of time now digesting and reflecting on on his experience. Like I said, first, we're just, just trying to understand and focus on his experience in the garden, what he went through for us. His experience of sorrow was real, very real. It wasn't saving. We're not saved by what Jesus did in the garden. We're saved by what he did on the cross. But in the garden, just like Jesus got a preview, we get a preview. We can better understand the cross because of what we understand from the garden. It gives us a window into his soul and his suffering, which is only going to be greater than this the following morning. Well, along these lines, I want to suggest just two lessons to learn that stem from Christ's experience in the garden. Now, there's more to come, you know, his prayer and the disciples, but for now, there's two lessons that stem from Christ's experience in Gethsemane. Number one, Christ's experience in Gethsemane reminds us that he suffered in our place. His experience in Gethsemane reminds us that he suffered in our place. In the garden, we start to see Jesus encounter his suffering. And we know Gethsemane, it's, it's nothing compared to the cross, but still, he's getting a preview in the garden of the next day, and so do we. The next day, it, it's a whole new level when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it's a whole new level on the cross. But in the garden, we get that, that preview as well. And his experience in Gethsemane serves to remind us that he suffered in our place, just like the cross. None of this was for him. I mean, granted, he does all things for the glory of the Father and his own glory. But I mean that the cup of God's wrath wasn't filled with any of his sins. He didn't deserve that wrath at all. He's the sinless son of God. He shouldn't be there. He didn't deserve this penalty. But like 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. That's the good news of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did, because of what he did, we don't have to face our Gethsemane or our cross or hell. If you've turned from your sins and placed your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, he redeems you from the curse. And he does so by taking your place. He takes your place. You're the sinner. You're the one that deserves God's wrath poured out justly for your sins. And me too. But he suffered so that we might have comfort. He was punished that we could go free. He was God forsaken on the cross especially that we would be God accepted. And he endured the equivalent of our eternal death so that we could have eternal life. The book of Revelation speaks of that eternal life that we will have with him and mentions how God will wipe away our every tear a couple times. You know, remember that? We will never experience sorrow eternally. We will be eternally free from sorrow because of Jesus, because he came as the man of sorrows to bear all of our sorrows and the real cause of our sorrow, which is, which is our sin. Think of all your sins. Think of everything you've done in your life against God. He took that in his cup and he drank it. He drank all of it. He paid the penalty for it. And now in him, you can be totally forgiven. Everything you've done is wiped away, forgiven. It's gone. It's paid for. You're free to go. In fact, in addition, he gives us his cup to drink, his cup of perfect righteousness. That's all that was in his cup, perfect righteousness. Like First Peter says, in him we die to sin, we live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed eternally. and We get this eternal life. This is called the great exchange. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. We do not deserve that at all. But we're reminded of it by his experience in Gethsemane. He did this for us. And because of this, let me just say, you can never doubt God's love or Christ's love for you ever again. You have no grounds to doubt his love ever. No matter what suffering you go through in life, if you get this, you can never doubt that he loves you. He cares for you. He proved it. This is why we sing about him. This is why we praise him. This is why we offer up our entire lives to him. He's worthy of our everything because he paid the ultimate price to redeem us. It's a small thing for us to give back our entire lives to him, not to try and repay him, but just in worship. And so be moved and be reminded to do that by witnessing the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane. And I want to call you, if you haven't done so, to respond to his call to forsake your sin, to repent, to believe in him as your Lord and Savior who takes your place. He can take your sorrow that you will bear eternally otherwise if you go to him and be saved. Do that today. Well, secondly and finally, a second lesson, Christ's experience in Gethsemane models for us how we are to respond to trials. 
This too is another important facet in his experience. Christ's experience in Gethsemane models for us how we are to respond to trials. Jesus died to actually pay for our sins. That's the big point. But in addition, his life and his death serve as our ultimate example of how God wants us to live. Precisely because he lived fundamentally as a man, he is our example. Otherwise, he could not be our example. Jesus didn't cheat, so to speak. He didn't rely on his divine nature to get him out of trouble. He, he took it all as a man, relying on his human nature. But because he did and endured, he is our perfect example, our legitimate example. As a true man, he responded the way God wants all of us to respond to sorrow in life. And as his disciples, we should follow his example that he lays for us in Gethsemane. Peter, like I said, we'll see how he learns this the hard way, but he learned the lesson. And in 1 Peter, there's many echoes of the garden. 1 Peter chapter 2, his theme is suffering. He says this in verse 19 20. He says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. So look, we're, we're all going to suffer. Everyone will suffer. Trials will come. It's even worse for Christians because we have to deal with persecution. It's going to happen. It's promised. It's just a matter of time. But how does God want us to deal with such suffering? He wants us to patiently endure the trial without sinning. There's no promise that your trials will immediately go away. There's no promise. But what pleases God is when you patiently endure your trial without sinning. That finds favor, Peter says. And he goes on. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what we, we watched him do in, in the garden? Verse 21 in, in 1 Peter 2, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus, it says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know, again, we can't even fathom what Jesus went through in Gethsemane, let alone the cross. But how did he endure? How did he endure? How is he able to patiently endure without sinning, relying on just his human nature? How do you do that? Through prayer. Prayer is the answer. He called upon the Father for strength and encouragement. Jesus needed strength. Do you understand that? He needed strength. That's why he prayed. As proof, Luke 22 verse 43 says, After the garden, God sent him an angel to strengthen him. Because he needed strength. And that's why he prayed. The human nature it has inherent weakness, and, and so be it. Same goes for us. We need strength in trials. How do we access strength, though? God's strength for our trials. Through prayer. You need to learn to take it to the Lord 
in prayer. In prayer, you're humbling yourself. You're expressing your dependence on God and you're trusting Him to deliver you. And through prayer, God promises to give you the strength you need to endure and God promises to give you peace in the midst of your trial. I mean, you guys, you know this verse, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. But listen again. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus just perfectly model Philippians 4, 6, and 7 for us? He's like the poster boy for Philippians 4, 6, and 7 in the garden. That's what's happening. He had this intense pressure, this trial. It was tempting him to doubt God and flee the cross. Temptation is not sin. He was tempted, but he didn't do that. Instead of letting the anxiety overtake him, he prayed. He let his request be made known to God, which we'll see next week. And what was the result? It was perfect peace. I mean, think about this. This is the amazing part. We'll see this to come, but during Gethsemane, we've already established Jesus was not in peace. He was, he was struggling internally with turmoil, anguish of soul. We get that. But do you recall what Jesus was like after Gethsemane, after he prayed? After the garden, he's totally calm. It's actually pretty amazing. He was, he's ready to go. He experiences this perfect peace, not before, but after that prayer. And that peace lasted and carried him through his arrest, his trial, his torture, and his execution. In fact, after the garden, he faces everything else to come, which is worse, but he faces it with this amazing boldness and confidence. His ability to patiently endure without sinning, though, it started in Gethsemane after he prayed. It's the same for you. The promise stands for you and me. It's not wrong to pray that God would remove your suffering, your trial in life. Pray it. Let your request be made known. Pray that God would lift your trial. But understand that often God says no. He says no. Like Paul, who prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his side. Three times God said, nope, not going to do it. There's no promise that in prayer, God will deliver you from your sorrows all the time. But there is a promise that God will deliver you through your sorrows in prayer all the time. Anytime you pray, God promises he will deliver you through your sorrows. And he did that with Jesus. Jesus didn't escape the cross, but God delivered him through it in this prayer. I'm sure there's sorrow in the room. I'm sure many of you have trouble in life right now. Trouble comes to all of us. It's common to man. Jesus knew it. He knew, he knows what you're going through. More than you know, even, what you're going through. But look to him. He suffered in your place so that you would not have to know eternal suffering if you believe in him. And he then shows you the way, the way to life, the way to peace, and the way to endurance. So follow him, and you too can enjoy the perfect peace that he purchased for you on the cross, but starting at Gethsemane.
Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus in, in heaven, you now sit at the right hand of the Father, but we, we so appreciate this passage in, in your holy word. We need, we need this. We need to see you as we are in a sense, though you were God-man, you, you lived as man, you en- endured this cross as man. You did it for us. You were a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we, we can't even fathom what that was like to really face the eternal punishment for our sins. And you were sinless, the sinless Son of God. You knew nothing but the praise of angels and God forever. Yet you humbled yourself and you took on that cross for us. Or let that sink into our hearts. Our hearts are often dull to this truth, but I pray you can awaken fresh affection for Christ this morning. We need these reminders. We need to see the cross all the time. It gives us appreciation for your son and for the life that we have. I pray for any who have not done so, that they would humble themselves and, and really repent understand their sin that put Jesus on the cross, but understand what he did to forgive them and free them. That they would they would turn and they would believe. They would call upon him, Lord. And for us who have, we need this reminder that we too would continue to call upon him. He he now stands interceding for us. He hears prayer and he knows what we're going through, Lord. You do. That we may be suffering in this room, that we may have trials. We know for one, it's nothing compared to what you went through. But that's encouraging because we can call out to you and you will hear, you will answer. You promise peace and comfort. Though our trials may not go away, like yours did not go away, you will carry us through it. May we learn today to never forsake taking it to the Lord in prayer, always in, and in everything, Lord. We want to do that now. We want to express that now. We love you and thank you for the cross and thank you for even the garden. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.